there are some phrases in Second Samuel that, that I hope will be imprinted on your minds as we leave this book. Uh, two examples from the second half of the book take the form of questions. Uh, the first is a question that, that some in Israel were asking each other after the failure of Absalom's rebellion. Talking about David, they said, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? It's a question that, that we are asking of our nation in these days as the nation lurches from one crisis to another. And surely every Christian should be saying, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Why keep on trying to govern while ignoring King Jesus? Another question that that has really stuck with me and which I think is really evangelistically powerful for our world today is Tamar's question uh, which came when her half-brother made clear what he wanted to do to her and she asked, where could I carry my shame? Uh, there's so much in that question that, that I'll maybe base a special service round it when the Go Team are with us at the end of August. But the ultimate answer, uh, which we saw at the time, is the cross. Where can you carry your shame? You can carry it to the cross and have Jesus take it from you. The final phrase from 2 Samuel that I want us to remember particularly isn't a question but a statement and it's here in verse 24 where David says I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Those are the final words of David in the whole book and I want us to feel the weight of them this morning and examine our lives in light of them. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. There are words that would be good for us to think about as we prepare to come in three weeks' time to sit around the Lord's table. There would be words that would be good to, to think about for anyone considering membership. But really for, for all of us at any time, there are good words for us to come back to. Because it is scarily possible to have an outward profession of religion which doesn't actually cost us anything. A, a one hour a week type of Christianity. And in fact if that one hour of worship clashes with, with something the person wants to do or, or, or with something that other people want the person to do, worship is often what gets dropped but what we see from both this verse and elsewhere in the Bible is that actually no worship would be better than worship which costs us nothing. Not to worship God is sinful, but to offer him the, the dregs and leftovers of our life is even more offensive to him. So this is a, a challenging text that's in front of us. But it's also one that I trust will be an encouragement to you if your service to God is costing you something. And I know that for many of you to follow Jesus has done, uh, has come at a cost and does come at a cost. 
I'm conscious that for some of you, even to to physically make it out to worship on the Lord's Day comes at a cost. Some of us don't don't need to think about whether physically we'll be able to to make it to church on any given Lord's Day. But but I'm conscious for some of you, it has taken a cost this morning for you even to be here. David, of course, who says these words, he's an example of someone who, who refused to offer God, which cost him nothing. And so if, if you can look at some of the different areas of life that we'll highlight today and see tangible ways in which your Christianity is costing you, uh, maybe uh, maybe it's not the, the physical uh, physical effort of coming together but but the but the the social effort to come together with other people maybe maybe that is a a cost for you Uh, all sorts of costs maybe some of us don't even think about uh, but they're costs for you well then you can be encouraged uh, whatever avenue of service that is costing you whatever ways your service for God is costing you you can be encouraged that the same Holy Spirit that was at work in David is at work in you as well if if your testimony is the same as David's and you can be encouraged today that the cost you're paying is worth it that it is so worth it so we want to look at this verse under two headings this morning Uh, And firstly, we do need to face up to this truth that it is better not to worship than to offer worship which costs us nothing. It's actually better not to worship than to offer worship that costs us nothing. Sometimes it is good when the doors of a church close. Sometimes it is better that churches close than that they stay open. That might sound a surprising thing for a minister to say and I'm not saying we shouldn't feel a pang of regret when we see a church building where God was once worshipped turned into a restaurant or a pub or a carpet showroom. Surely if those things didn't affect us there would be something wrong. But if by, by the end that the gospel was, was no longer being preached in that building then It is better for it now to be a nightclub than a church. Because at least if people go into a nightclub, they know what they're going into. But if they go into somewhere that says the word word church on the outside and where Christian words are used, they will assume that what they're hearing inside is the gospel, even if it's not. And that is the the deviousness of liberalism and what it does in churches. Where you can have churches and an actual different religion is being taught, the religion of liberalism. But but people don't even realise because the same vocabulary is being used. And if you think it's surprising that, that a minister would think it's good for the doors of a church to close... Well, you might find it even more close at times, not, not all the time, obviously. But uh, what, what you might find even more surprising is that God himself says the same thing. Malachi 1 verse 10 is an amazing verse, a shocking verse. God says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. 
There was a time when God himself longed that someone would shut the doors of his temple. Not that they would shut the doors of a pagan temple, but that they would shut the doors of his own temple. Why? To stop people offering him things that cost him nothing. He would rather no worship than costless worship. He says two verses earlier, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour? So what were they doing? They were looking at their flocks and they were saying, well, well, there's a blind animal. It's no use to me. So I know what I'll do. I'll take it to the temple and I'll offer it to God. Uh, and then I can keep, a, keep this healthy one that I was going to sacrifice. I can keep it here. Or they say, well, well, look, there's a sick animal. It's not going to live long. So I might as well use it the next time I have to go and sacrifice an animal to God. I'll give the sick one to God uh, and I'll keep the healthy one for myself. God says, oh, that someone would shut the doors because he is not going to accept it. He says in verse 13 of Malachi 1, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Now we're not called to offer animal sacrifices today. But what is the attitude behind offering God lame or sick animals? The attitude behind it is that the worship of God is a waste. The attitude is that what is given to God is a loss. So we should give to God the least that we can get away with giving him. The attitude is I'm certainly not going to bring offerings that that actually cost me. I'm going to give him things that no one else wants. And that might satisfy someone's conscience, but it certainly won't satisfy God. And so he says it's better not to do it. Because if you do, you're cursed. Cursed in a way that you wouldn't be if you just didn't bring anything. Malachi 1.14 Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, cursed be those who like the appearance of being devoted to God but aren't willing to, to take the hit which that reality would require. Some people want to give the impression of being committed to God but they think that the reality of it is too costly. But whether we're willing to pay the cost shows what we really think of God. That's God's own argument in Malachi chapter 1. He says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour? In other words, try and be that half-hearted as you serve your king or, or as you serve your employer and see what they think of it. Imagine you'd had a role to play at the coronation of King Charles. Would you have done it half-heartedly? Would it have been something that you didn't think about before you turned up because you were so busy with other commitments? 
Of course not. Anyone who had a role to play would have put everything they had into it. And that's for an adulterous king like Charles, for a king who doesn't love the Lord. How much more commitment should we have for the king of kings? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Or what about your employer? What would an employer think of an employee who just turned up when it suited them? And who, when they came, didn't engage with what they were meant to be there for. An employer wouldn't stand for it. And yet people have the idea that God should be grateful for for anything uh, that we happen to give him. I heard of one man who at one point was an elder in a church and he he was challenged. I I think the, the, the question was about why he wasn't attending evening worship. And he replied, one hour a week is enough for him. Talking about God. What an awful thing for anyone to say. Uh, Never mind an elder, but how many think like that? How many begrudge the little that they even do give God? So the, the greatness of the king should be a motivation for us to serve him. But so should the goodness of the king. The goodness of the king should be a motivation for us as well as the greatness of the king. Even if someone didn't know Charles at all, to be asked to play a role at his coronation would have been a great honour and they would have put their all into it. But if someone knew him and knew he cared deeply about them, And if he had done a lot for them, for them to be asked to play a role at the coronation, no no matter how glamorous or unglamorous, no matter how upfront or behind the scenes, that would have been something they would have done from a heart of love. And David here is determined to offer God worship that costs him nothing, not simply because of God's greatness, but because of his goodness. We've, we've sang earlier from Psalm 116 words that David himself could have sung. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. That was David's testimony. The Lord had dealt bountifully with him. As the Lord reminded David at one point, I, I took you from the pasture from following sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. God had done so much for him. And God has done so much for us. David knew God as his shepherd. He tells us that in Psalm 23. But with the New Testament in our hands, we can see more clearly than David could that the good shepherd would one day come and lay down his life for the sheep. We've referred to Malachi a number of times. The book starts with the Lord asking the question, or with the Lord saying, I have loved you. That's the fundamental reason why their half-hearted worship was so bad. Yes, it dishonoured God, which is a serious thing, but it also threw that love back in his face. 
The Lord said, I have loved you. But the people replied, how have you loved us? What an awful question to ask. But God tells them that he had loved them by choosing them out from among the nations. And if we were to ask that question today, how have you loved us? A question which hopefully we will never need to ask. The ultimate answer is the cross. There he's shown just how much he loved us. And so in light not only of the greatness but also the goodness of God, are we really going to offer him worship which costs us very little? It would be better not to worship than to offer worship that costs us nothing. But then secondly, this morning, we want to ask the question, what does costly worship look like? What does costly service look like? Uh, We shouldn't offer service to the king, which costs us nothing. But it's important to say as well that our worship is not acceptable to God simply because it is costly. So do you see... The two things aren't the same. We shouldn't offer worship to God, something that costs us nothing. But neither is our worship acceptable just because it does cost us a lot. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that if we give away all that we have and if we deliver our bodies up to be burned, but have not love, we gain nothing. Service of God which doesn't spring from a sense of his goodness doesn't honour him. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it is the love of Christ that compels us. There is a, a difference as I was saying earlier to the boys and girls between serving God out of love and serving him out of a slavish fear. When we serve out of love, we serve because we want to, because we get to. But when we serve out of a slavish fear, we serve him reluctantly because we have to. When Jacob had to serve seven years to marry Rachel, do you remember how long it seemed to him? We're told that it seemed just a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. If we serve God out of slavish fear, we'll do the bare minimum and begrudge even doing that. But if we serve him out of love, then it doesn't seem like a burden. There are some biblical phrases that have become so much a part of our culture that most people don't realise where they originally come from. Um, One of those phrases is the phrase, a labour of love. Uh, Maybe someone has interviewed on the news about a big project that they have just completed. and They say, look, honestly, it was a labour of love. It's a beautiful phrase. And it was originally coined by the Apostle Paul to describe what our service to God should be like under the the inspiration of the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 1. So what does costly service look like? It's motivated by love. It is labour. It is labour. But it's a labour of love. 
sometimes perhaps we just focus on the labor uh, but that that brings little honor to god because it must be a labor of love you know a, a minister could perhaps guilt trip people into doing certain things but if it doesn't spring from love to god then there's little point to it now it's true that sometimes we have to do things just because they're the right thing to do someone might not feel like getting out of bed on a monday morning but they shouldn't stay in bed until they feel like it Uh, that would be a recipe for disaster and in the same way there are times when we don't feel like doing things in the service of God but we're to do them simply because they're the right thing to do at times it has to be like that you know if we only ever came to church when when, when we felt like coming to church sometimes we just have to do things because they're the right thing to do but if the only reason we ever do things for God is because we we feel like like we should then that is a big problem because costly worship is motivated by love costly worship also springs from faith it springs from faith hebrews 11 describes people who did amazing things in the service of god uh, people who counted the cost who paid a high price Uh, You have Abraham who was about to sacrifice his only son uh, who he had longed for for so long. You have Moses who turned his back in the treasures of Egypt. You have people there who were stoned, who were sawn in two, who were killed with the sword. And how did they do it? How did they do it? By faith. By faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, all these were commended through their faith. Without love, it's all pointless. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we see David's faith on display in 2 Samuel 24, where he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. For David, God is not just God, uh, that name which speaks of power and majesty, nor is he even just the Lord, the name which speaks of God's covenant relationship with his people. But he is the Lord, my God. And that little word, my, changes everything. That word, my, speaks of David's faith. Not just empty faith, the way our world talks about people of faith but faith in a person Uh, people of of any religion could say well my faith is very important to me but only uh, the born again believer can speak of his faith in a person faith in jesus christ Uh, the words of psalm 73 uh, they weren't written by david but but they describe his attitude to god whom have i in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that i desire beside you what does costly worship look like it's motivated by love and it springs from faith faith that god is our god and faith in doing what he calls us to do 
even when uh, we perhaps can't see little fruit or can't see much fruit from it. So love and faith, those are, are so important because what, while I'll go on now to speak in practical terms about the ways in which our service of God may cost us, those are the bits that others m- may often see, but only we know our true motivation. Whether we are serving out of love for God and out of faith in Jesus, others can't see, but God sees. But practically then, if we are going to do the opposite of offering to God things which cost us nothing, what might that look like? For David in 2 Samuel 24, it is a financial cost. It's a financial cost. David is told by the prophet Gad to go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Uh, the only obstacle is that, that, that Aruna's threshing floor belongs to Aruna. Uh, so for, for David to, to, to use it, he needs to own it. But when David arrives and says that he's come to buy the threshing floor, Aruna says, basically, it's okay, David, I'll give it to you. Uh, you, you go ahead. You, you don't need to buy it. Uh, well, well, how does David respond to that? Does, does David say, great, that, 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 that's good. That will, that will save the royal treasury some money. That will save me personally some money. No, David refuses. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. And then he says the words we're focusing on today. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And he buys the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces of silver. David's service to God comes at a monetary cost. And that is a cost that David is happy to pay. He doesn't see that cost as something to be avoided at all, at all cost. Uh, When he's offered the opportunity to serve God for free, he turns it down. He doesn't want to serve God if it doesn't cost him anything. Because for him, service of God that costs him nothing is not real service. The very idea behind our English word worship is an acknowledgement of someone's worth. And we show by our costly service of God how much we think he is actually worth. One of the many insults faced by the Lord Jesus as he went to the cross was how much he was betrayed for. 30 pieces of silver, the very price was an insult. God doesn't need our money, which is actually his anyway. The the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The Apostle Paul reminds us, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. We do not have a needy God, but rather our financial giving or lack of it is one of the things that shows how we view God. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 8, it's one of the evidences that our love is genuine. Paul speaking there of the churches of Macedonia, who he says gave according to their means and beyond their means. And he uses the image of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians to give. 
when he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. But God is concerned not just that we give, not just that we excel in giving, but about the heart behind it. God loves a cheerful giver. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, If I give away all that I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. The Bible condemns the heart that looks on costly service to God as a waste. When Jesus' own disciples saw a woman anoint him with very expensive ointment, they said, why this waste? But Jesus said, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. The New Testament emphasis isn't on giving a particular percentage, though I think we have reason to believe that the 10% figure that we see as early in the Bible as Genesis 14 it still holds true, at least as a minimum. But the New Testament emphasis is on joyful, sacrificial giving, not reluctantly. The emphasis is on people who will say, as David did, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. But there are ways our service of God may be a, a financial cost to us other than simply giving. There's God's command that we wouldn't do any unnecessary work on the Lord's day. And the financial cost that that could involve in, in terms of turning down work. Or, or the, the social cost of keeping the Lord's day holy. The world looks at us and can't understand. Uh, which, is, which is no new thing. Uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca said that the Jews were a foolish people because they lost a full seventh part of their lives in idleness and rest. In other words, because they devoted one day a week to God. And maybe you've even heard people say to you, well look, you go to church in the morning, is that not enough? Anything more than even Even that, people, people think, is, is a lot, but... But to go beyond that, people think that's crazy. You've gone to church, surely that's enough. Uh, time doesn't permit us to go into detail about other ways our service of God will cost us. But, but it's something we should all go away and ponder. But to give uh, a couple more examples. Living as a Christian when the rest of your family aren't Christians will cost you. It'll cost you in lots of little ways, but also in, in big ways. Having a daily time of God uh, and reading your Bible, praying to Him, that will, that will cost you. There'll be a cost in terms of, of time, perhaps sleep, perhaps other things that you're not able to do. Standing up for the Bible's teaching on morality will cost you. Refusing to bow the knee to the idolatry of Pride Month might cost you. Uh, your reputation or friendships might take a hit if you refuse to endorse sinful lifestyles around you. Uh, you might suffer in work as a Christian if you refuse to lie to, to cover for someone. There are many ways our service of God may be costly, but the true believer doesn't look at it as a cost. 
When Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked about giving up a promising medical career where he could have become one of the top doctors in the land, when he was asked about giving that up to become a minister, he said, I gave up nothing. I received everything. And that should be the, the attitude of us all to serving God. We give up nothing. We receive everything. And in fact, do not even pagans and followers of false religions rebuke us in the devotedness with which they serve their false gods when we are so half-hearted in our service of the true God and our service of his son, Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. There's no time to say more than a few words on this, but, but one motivation to costly service is that we are promised a reward, even in, in this life. We could make a horrible mistake with today's verse. That horrible mistake would be to think that our salvation depends on our efforts. Uh, and the more costly our efforts, the more likely we are to get into heaven. Uh, not at all. Hopefully, from what we've already said so far, it's clear that David's desire to offer a costly sacrifice isn't because he hopes to earn his salvation. He speaks as a man who already has a deep relationship with God. We're saved only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which these burnt offerings and peace offerings pointed forward to. And yet Jesus himself says that even in this life, costly service to him will be rewarded. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Why does he add on eternal life? Because your willingness or lack of willingness to serve God in costly ways now is part of the evidence as to whether you're one of his people or not. Jesus tells us that we must count the cost before becoming a disciple. And if we think we can get to heaven despite our faith never costing us then as one of the Puritans put it, we believe in a new Christianity which Christ never taught and the scriptures don't recognise. A faith which doesn't cost us is a new Christianity which Christ never taught and the scriptures don't recognise. It would in fact be a Christianity of our own making and therefore will not be accepted by God. But just as we close today, this chapter and the book of 2 Samuel ends at the threshing floor of Aruna, now owned by David. But we can't end there. Because as the account of the same events in First Chronicles goes on to tell us, David declares that that threshing floor will be the site of the temple, where for centuries sacrifices would be offered. Up until the final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus meant that no more sacrifices would be required. And the ultimate reason why we refuse to offer the Lord that which costs us nothing is that our salvation cost him everything. 
And so there's nothing more to pay. And in light of all that he has done for us, any sacrifice he calls us to make for him is not a burden, but a blessing. Amen. Well, we respond to God's word by singing from God's word, turning to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the first five verses. Page 276. Uh, Noticing especially verse 3, which speaks about a willing people. As it is in our Bibles, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. When the Holy Spirit is poured out in someone's life, they will offer themselves freely, not begrudgingly, but willingly. And if we can sing these words, and if this is our testimony, then it's all of grace. And we praise him for that with these words. Let's praise God. <laughs> 